from APM American Public Media. This is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. Online K-12 schools are enrolling more students every year. More than 200,000 nationwide go full-time at last count. Supporters say virtual technology has the potential to reduce the cost and increase the availability of high-quality education. But the National Education Policy Center has just released its second study of online K-12 schools, and it says basically, not so fast. The report says that online education has outpaced the ability of policymakers to track how well it works. In fact, the report recommends that most states and school districts pull back from contracting with virtual schools until there are better ways to hold these schools accountable for student achievement. One of the authors of the report joins me this week on the podcast. He is Luis Huerta, a professor of education policy at Columbia University in New York. Welcome. Thank you, Stephen, for having me. So first to be clear, your study looks at full-time online public schools. Who is likely to attend these schools? So, Stephen, we chose to focus on these schools simply because uh, districts nationwide for a long time have offered either some form of virtual or uh, home study. But this report focuses specifically on full-time because this is the trend where we see that is that is growing the largest of any other type of uh, online instruction. As far as which students are most likely to attend, we know that Many of the students who are attending these schools are previously homeschooled children, uh, where we have a lot of the management organizations that operate these schools are specifically targeting their enrollment to families that have been traditional or private homeschool families. We also see a large number of at-risk students being targeted by some of the for-profit companies. And nationwide, we see a very small amount of African-American and Hispanic students attending these schools. Who operates the schools? Are they mostly run by for-profit organizations on behalf of school districts? Correct. About 44% of all full-time virtual schools actually are operated by education management organizations, and that accounts for about 72% of all students enrolled. Uh, And these are, for the most part, for-profit organizations that are using the per-pupil tuition that's provided by the state and local districts and generating a profit from that in the services they provide. How fast is this sector growing? Quite fast. Even in just this past year, from our first report to uh, the second report this year in 2014, we saw about a 21% increase in the number of students enrolled in full-time virtual schools and also an increase in the number of virtual schools to about 338 compared to about 311 last year. These online schools, especially for the kids who are in uh, the younger grades, require an enormous amount of parental supervision, I would assume. Well, that's one of the tricky parts of figuring out uh, who the instructors are and how much um, one-on-one instruction is being provided and guided by the actual teachers versus software or other types of interaction with students. So uh, for the families who have been traditional homeschool families, a lot of these families are quite versed in providing instruction to their students. But for a lot of the families that are joining that haven't been traditionally homeschooled families, Many realize that the inordinate amount of time that's required to supervise their students and to provide instruction is a a commitment that they did not plan for, which also accounts for a lot of the families that initially sign up and then quickly realize that this is not an option for them. Were homeschool families really the target for these online institutions? I mean, is this a problem that local school districts are trying to solve? 
Well, if we look back almost 15 or so years um, in states like California, Arizona, and Wisconsin, early in the charter school movement, the charter school movement began in about 1992 in Minnesota, many of the charter schools that were coming on, online in these states were specifically targeting homeschool families, traditional private homeschool families. Over time, these traditional homeschool families that were signing up for public charter schools began adopting the cyber virtual model that we are now familiar with. Uh, homeschool families have always been versed in technology and use that to communicate with each other. Um, but as these curriculums began to be developed that were specifically targeting these families more, we saw many of these homeschool families beginning to be one of the primary constituents. That's changed a, bit, a little bit. However, these numbers are hard to track because very few of the management organizations actually track what type of families that they're actually serving. But we do know that one of the primary audiences that's targeted now, as far as students, are at-risk students. And do you have an idea of how well these schools serve those at-risk students? So there has yet to be a comprehensive study that's um, looked across states in comparing some of the performance. But as far as the numbers that we've accounted for, simply looking at annual yearly progress, we see consistently that kids that are enrolled in the virtual schools are performing at a level that's much lower, and the schools in general are failing to meet annual yearly progress compared to traditional charter school and to traditional brick-and-mortar school as well. So the performance of these schools is actually comparatively uh, quite a bit lower compared to other students. Well, research shows that some traditional schools do a poor job themselves at educating at-risk students, but you're saying that the online schools are doing even worse than that. True. That's correct. However, uh, with the caveat that's really important is that there has yet to be a study that's actually sorted out how these schools are, are doing with the specific subset of students. Uh, perhaps the most reliable study is a piece of work that was done by Credo, a research center at Stanford that looked specifically at all virtual schools in Pennsylvania, and this was about three or four years ago. And they were able to control and, and provide uh, equal comparison groups across between uh, cyber schools and um, traditional charter schools, or brick-and-mortar schools and traditional schools. And their research clearly indicated that all of the virtual schools operating in Pennsylvania at that time were students were scoring significantly lower than kids in either of the other types of schools. What does your paper recommend in terms of how to fix the problems that are apparently uh, cropping up with these online K-12 schools? So we try to target uh, a sort of wide swath of issues that are aligned with trying to increase accountability of how these schools operate. Um, for example, teacher quality nationwide is, has been a prominent issue over the last five or six years um, with many state governments and also the federal government calling for increased teacher quality. But what happens in the virtual model is that many of the proponents of virtual schools have failed to acknowledge the type of incentives that might actually attract a teacher to begin virtual schooling as opposed to the traditional in-person schooling that happens in a, in a brick-and-mortar context. Um, more importantly, there isn't any research that really indicates the differentiated training that's necessary that for a teacher that might actually deliver instruction in a virtual context. So there's an assumption that if you're a high-quality teacher in a traditional context, 
that you will also be a high-quality teacher in a virtual context. However, there really isn't any research to show that. And given the delivery model being so different, it's uh, an area of research that has yet to be explored. Um, and I think we, don't, we shouldn't assume that, that it requires the same skill set and motivation on behalf of those who are delivering instruction. What are the incentives for online teachers? Uh, that's a tricky one, uh, Stephen. <laughs> in most cases, the loads of students insofar as uh, the teacher-pupil ratios are significantly higher. We have examples in Florida and Tennessee and other places where some teachers were carrying loads of 100 to 150 to 1. Um, and again, it calls into question whether a quality teacher in a traditional brick-and-mortar context is willing to take on those additional students for exchange of perhaps working at home rather than having to enter the classroom. is I mean, that may be one of the cells that, that uh, many proponents talk about. So it's very difficult to pinpoint what the incentives are for teachers to move over this other than perhaps a change in lifestyle. However, they have to account for the increase in demands or, and the different types of delivery models as well. Did your research identify any places that you think are doing it right? California is probably the state that is furthest along in increasing some of the governance and accountability structures in their state. Um, and this is something that they actually attacked uh, almost 10 years ago, where given the high growth and the very quick growth of both virtual and homeschool charter schools in that state, the state realized that they needed to begin to account for uh, the cost differences and, and also the differences in the amount of time that was being spent by teachers with students. So what the state did at that time is that they installed a couple accountability measures. For example, they required that uh, if a district operated a virtual or homeschool charter, that they had to have the same ratio of teacher and pupil as any other school in that district. So you couldn't carry these large 150 to 1 student-teacher ratios. In fact, you had to have the traditional 30 to 35 to 1. You also had to provide the same amount of instructional minutes per year required of traditional schools. And this was a way to uh, assure that teachers were in contact with students and following their instructional plan that was being delivered to students. What happened in California is that if the virtual schools and homeschooled charters didn't comply with this, they would actually lose a proportion of their funding. When this law passed over the first two years, there were some schools that lost up to 60% of their per-pupil revenue. However, most of them recovered quickly after they realized that they could work within some of the gray that exists in the law with, with meeting pupil-teacher ratios and other requirements. Um, however, California remains the state that has attempted to increase accountability more than any other state. Luis Huerta is a professor of education policy at Columbia University. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Luis Huerta is one of several co-authors of a critical new report about online K-12 schools from the National Education Policy Center. You can find more podcasts about trends in K-12 and higher education at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. While you're there, browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects and let us know what you think of our coverage, AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks, and you can follow us on Twitter at AM RadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.